Sci-Fi for Me Radio presents Timothy Harvey, Jason Hunt. This is H2O. Welcome everyone to this episode of H2O, our 147th. We are quickly... We look pretty good for 147. Yeah. <laughs> well. Speak for yourself. I, I don't know. We are, we are quickly careening down toward 150. Careening and, down? Yeah, careening downhill. Interesting. Okay. My name is Jason Hunt. I am Timothy Harvey. And we have coffee in hand, and we, we are talking this week about the news that we got this weekend, or, or just a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't remember I, how how does he pronounce his name? Dennis okay. Villeneuve. Villeneuve, I think. Villeneuve yes, will be directing the first film project in Legendary Entertainment's new adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune series of books. Uh, Brian Herbert, Frank's son, who has been writing the books with Kevin J. Anderson of late uh, since his father's passing. Uh, posted on Twitter this week, and uh, Kevin Anderson posted right after that, confirming that uh, Villeneuve will direct. Now, he's the director of The Arrival, mm-hmm. Socorio, right. uh, a couple of others that everybody well, says. And a little Blade Runner project. Blade, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, a little, yeah. little thing. Yeah, but that's not out yet, so we don't know <laughs> if it's any good. But uh, he's going to take on Dune. Now, interestingly enough, uh, I, I ran across an interview in Variety where he was talking, I think it was during The Arrival press junket. Mm-hmm where they were talking about projects that he'd want to do, and he'd said, yeah, I'd really like to take a crack at Dune. Sure. But it's so hard to mm-hmm. do. And, and no one's going to let him do it. I mean, right. no, no one's going to give him, no, one, yeah, no one's going to give that film. No one's going to give that to me. And then, <laughs> lo and behold, so uh, back in November mm-hmm. is when we got the news that Legendary had got the rights to Dune from the Herbert estate. Yes. Now, this is all uh, film and television, movie and television rights. Right. So, that means, maybe, the uh, the speculation is that there will be more than one movie. Right. And maybe a TV show or two. Mm-hmm. Or a TV miniseries. You could do it that way, the way Sci-Fi Channel did. Or none of the above, <laughs> because the first movie will tank. Uh, not saying that it will. Well, and it's a, it's a challenging property to adapt, okay? Because I mean, it's yeah. we've talked about this before. Um, Dune is not just a science fiction story; it's a story about politics and religion and ecology and the balance of power economics. And it's all these different things. Because Herbert was um, somebody who didn't just want to tell one kind of story. And in fact, if you look at the the series, and I'm just talking about the Frank Herbert series at this point. Yeah, there are five of those. Um, you are looking at each book deals with, has a very different focus. They're all part of the same coherent universe, but there's, oh goodness. I mean, you, you bounce all over the place. There's there's stuff dealing with sexual uh, power games and, and things in the later books. There's, you know, the idea of intergalactic empire and through all of them, but so much of it comes down to just really, really big ideas, which often do not translate well to film. Yeah, and, I was to ask David Lynch about that. Right, and if you look at what Lynch did with the Dune adaptation, and if you can find one of the extended cuts out there, they're very interesting to look at that versus a theatrical cut. 
Um, and by that, you're you're saying there are more than one. Oh, there's like seven different cuts of the movie. <laughs> it's like Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, except that uh, for the most part, the Blade Runner differences tend to be, you know, you either have your voiceover or no voiceover. Mm-hmm. You have the dream sequences emphasized yeah. or de-emphasized. Um, but that's another example of a of a complex. You know, Philip K. Dick has got a lot of adaptations done over the years. Some of them with varying degrees of terrible. Mm. <clears throat> Although one of my favorite ones, oh gosh, it's uh, Gary uh, Gary Sinise and is it Madeline Stowe? Uh, oh yeah, Replica. I think it was. Gosh, I'm going to look that up. Um, that's actually one of my. That's a, uh, a feature that's adapted from a short story by Philip K. Dick, which is a the I, the core idea is there, and I think I actually it's a one of those films that nobody saw, but actually turned out to be pretty decent. Mm. The when you are adapting these big idea novels and stories, you run into some real interesting challenges. So you end up with things like like David Lynch's Dune, where so much of what is core to the novel simply isn't on the screen. Right. And so much, but at the same time, the basic beats of the novel are there. And the people who really, really love that movie or like that movie are fans of the aesthetic. They're fans of the performances. They're fans of Sting in a Metal Loincloth. They're, you know, whatever it is, there's, because it's a fantastic cast. And the sci-fi, the sci-fi channel adaptations of Dune and Children of Dune, which is actually Dune Messiah and Children of Dune were adapted into one miniseries. It was called Imposter. Imposter, thank you. Um, James McAvoy, of course, was in, one of his early roles was in Children of Dune for the sci-fi channel. Yes, he, he actually, he played Paul Atreides. Well, he played Leto. No, he played no, Paul's Lito. son. Paul's son, that's right. But there's some very interesting... That was a test. There you go. <laughs> I own all the books. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Dune series, and I was actually very impressed with how much of the larger story and the detail they were actually able to put into the sci-fi channel miniseries, Mm -hmm. both of them, especially the first one. The second one was was actually a step down in quality. It's it's, it's a fine, uh, it's a a, decent adaptation, but the first one um, was done very much like a mixture of movie and stage show um they did uh, something called translites which is basically these giant photographs that are blown up to huge scale and they're backlit yes so your desert scenes were not shot on location they were shot on a sound stage with these amazing translite basically kind of a backdrop slash sort of, it's sort of an adaptation of the rear projection process that they yeah. used to use for for driving sequences. Well, they still use it to a sure. certain extent, but but it also it, it saved them some money, which was uh, when you were considering the scale of what they were when you're Dune is a world building exercise in how to blow a budget. <laughs> um, there are so many things that you have to you know, it's so far in the future. It is, you know, you can't. It, it's such it's such an expansive world that you really don't have that many things you can sit there and say. Men in the future will be dressed in suits. Yeah. Well, okay, no, not really. So it's yeah, it's a fascinating. Um, it's been a fascinating exercise in getting really one of the most influential influential science fiction novels uh, adapted because, of course. There's oh now I'm gonna completely draw a blank on his name uh, Jodorowsky Jodorowsky's Dune 
mm-hmm. uh, which there's a fantastic documentary out about, which would have been an insane movie. <laughs> you know, Salvador Dali playing the emperor and, and just, I mean, uh, H.R. Giger designing wasn't or- the... Wasn't Orson Welles supposed to be a part of that team? He might, I, pos- I can't remember. I think so, maybe. But H.R. Giger was doing the production design for mm-hmm. it. A lot of his designs actually ended up being used at other places. Yep. Although, um, there's been some speculation. Some of those designs haven't been used. And they might show up. They might show up, yeah. Oh. Well, or maybe potentially even in another Dune adaptation because yeah. uh, the Harkonnen planet design was very much a mm-hmm. alien nightmare mm-hmm. uh, layout there. So it's it's a fascinating challenge, I think, for any filmmaker uh, to get right. And sometimes... <laughs> you can have a success and a failure. So you can have something like Lord of the Rings, three highly acclaimed you know, films, and the extended editions are just amazing, and all this detail and this right. labor of love uh, that you know they put together. And then The Hobbit, which, <laughs> you know, um, the, the, you know, the behind-the-scenes stuff basically show a cast and crew going, we're sorry. Because they were they were winging it so much of that so much of that production was basically done on the fly, which is no way to make a movie. No, by the way, it's not. Um, and then, of course, and, you have, and we know what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, we do. We've made movies on the fly, or something like iRobot, you oh. know, which is a which is a really neat action adventure science fiction film about a private detective and a robot. Yeah, but it has nothing to do with Isaac Asimov's. You have set of well, you have stories. you have a reference to the three laws. You have a. Hand wavy connection to the Lige Bailey novels with a detective and a you know, yeah. you know blah blah and a, you know and then you have a character named Susan Calvin, who is so not Susan Calvin, no, but but it's a fun movie. I mean, it's a, it's an entertaining oh, film sure. as long if it, had been, if it had been its own thing and not presented as an adaptation. You could have I kept it. You could, yeah, as long fine. as you just change the title. Yeah. It's a movie that is vastly improved by changing the name of the title. Yeah. Um, so, I mean... Like I Am Legend. Yeah. Uh, and see, okay, can, can you improve that movie by changing the title? Okay. I yeah, Legend. I called The Omega Man, which is what it basically... It's a remake of. And, okay, so there's another example. Is there have been um, uh, I Am Legend, uh, The Omega Man... Uh, what was the name of the Vincent Price one? I think it was... I, I don't think it was I Am Legend. Well, to the I know to the internet, but basically, yeah. Vincent Price made a version of the film years and years ago, uh, and of course, for those of you who have never read the novel I Am Legend, I highly recommend it. It's actually one of the better vampire post-apocalyptic vampire novels out there. Um, which, if I just said the words post-apocalyptic vampire novel, and you thought Last Man on Earth, and you're thinking, wait a minute, those don't sound like they go together, <laughs> or you know, um, so yeah, it's it's I Am Legend is. Hey, I didn't know this. Vincent Price was born in St. Louis. Was he really? I did not know huh. that. Um, so I mean, there's been there's been multiple. Uh, Charlton Heston was in the Omega Man, which is a very very loose adaptation, mm-hmm. and the Will Smith I Am Legend is more a remake of uh, the Omega Man than than anything else. Uh, which is it's very curious because you actually could do it's basically a zombie movie with vampires or a zombie story with vampires, uh, but. Richard Matheson, the author, uh, certainly has had a, his share of, of adaptations that have been hit and miss too. So I mean, it's a it's a real challenge to get it right. Oh, it's just like anything by by uh, Stephen King. 
Oh, yeah. Well, Stephen King even has trouble adapting Stephen King. Well, uh, Stephen King will be the first one to tell you that Stephen King should never be allowed to direct another film. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, it's an incredible challenge because not only we talk about now, now you look at it in terms of comic book movies. So the people who had the biggest problems with films like Man of Steel or Batman versus Superman were not the general moviegoer. Right. It were the fans. It was the fans of Batman, the fans of Superman, the people who knew the comic book characters. Um, the, all you have to do is look at the box office returns to know that the general public was fine with the movies. The critics may not have liked them, but the people actually, you know, the people actually put down their money, you know, they were okay right. with it. So you run into these things. Novels, long before science fiction was a huge blockbuster thing, long before Marvel movies and DC movies and all these things were these major you know, blockbuster events, science fiction novels were what fans turned to. You know, So we've got your Asimovs and your Bradburys and your Clarks and your Heinleins and your you know, Simaks and Silverbergs and all these people who basically defined what science fiction was. Right. <clears throat> so it becomes this, you know, these amazing seminal novels and short stories by these people, when you adapt them, you find yourself with this really huge challenge of getting them right in the ways that matter. Because I think most fans know that when you're adapting a book to a movie, there are necessary changes. Because one is a written medium that involves you looking at words and translating that into images in your head right. versus you know, making a movie, which is all visuals. Um, and so you end up with something that, like uh, Lynch's Dune, where you've got so much of that, so much of that story involves people thinking and you know, internal monologues and translating that into voiceover, which is a huge risk because yeah. most voiceovers are just not that interesting. Vincent Price's version was The Last Man on Earth. Last Man on Earth, okay. 1964. Yeah, and and Vincent it's actually a fairly fairly faithful adaptation. The problem is that Vincent Price is entirely the wrong person to be in the movie. <laughs> um But it's a scary movie. Well, it is well yeah, it, it is it is meant to have a certain element of horror to it and well back then Oh sure, you'd get Vince Price. Yeah, but at the same time, a he's... horror movie. Vince Price or Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee. Chris, actually, you know, Peter Cushing would have been better in the role. You think? Honestly, yeah. Well, okay. So Vincent Price was not necessarily known for being a man of action in the movies, mm. and I think really what happened there is that you really should have that character be. He's, he's very, very intelligent, but he's also a man of action. And I think that Peter Cushing, especially coming off the Holmes movies mm -hmm. and the Hammer films and that sort of thing, that whole, he certainly had, he, yeah, Cushing is often known for standing very, very still and creeping you out. <laughs> um, but he also did quite a bit of, of physical work as well. Now, Christopher Lee in that role would have been amazing. Because certainly, not only was he often a man of action in films, he was a man of action in life. Yeah. So he would have been a fantastic in the role. But that's not what happened. It's I actually like it. I own the film. Uh, and of, of the three versions, it's my favorite. Just because uh, they did try to be very faithful to the source material. And I love the novel. It's kind of hard to do, though. Oh, it is. And I think that you... It's... 
there's a challenge I think for a lot of filmmakers, and I think why, why this choice in director is really promising for a new Dune is that the arrival is very cerebral science fiction. That's the one he's got out now. That's the right. one they're talking Oscars for. Um, and it's it's about ideas, and there's without giving spoilers. If you haven't seen the film, I highly recommend going see it. It's smart sci-fi, great cast, although. I think Jeremy Renner is kind of wasted in it. Um, he's fine. It's just his character doesn't really serve a, a whole lot purpose, as yeah. far as I can tell. But um, it is—it's science fiction. It's in the called way- the Hawkeye Effect, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> unfortunately, because he's a good actor. It's—it's it's science fiction like two thousand and one. Okay, in a way. I mean, it's—it's it's got more action than two thousand and one. It's a more dynamic visual storytelling, and that's. Kind of like Europa Report, maybe without the horror. Uh, it's um, it's better than Europa Report. Yeah. Certainly, I think it's I think it's a beautiful film. I think it's very well done. It's got it makes some very interesting comments about about how we communicate and what we say because it's a film ultimately about well, okay a lot of good science fiction is about talking. Really, it's like it's about communicating. I don't, I don't understand what you, I know. Mean. What do you mean. What are you well, saying? So it's first context stories, of course, are a staple. It's you know to bringing together two very very different intelligences, and sometimes mm-hmm. I mean, two thousand and one is about first contact with an intelligence you never understand the other intelligence. Yeah. Um, you know, even if it's a film about two alien species fighting, you know, mankind versus alien, it's still a kind of it's a first contact story. It just goes bad. I mean, that's so much of science fiction is built around the idea of mankind meets aliens. It's a cookbook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you end up with you know, there's so many different, so many different shades that you can play along that spectrum. Um, and that was an adaptation as well. Twilight Zone did it. Yes, that's right. Yes. And we're just pulling all of them. I know. Well, that's just. I mean, it's there's the the history of adapting written material. In for the visual medium of film and television and science fiction, you know, Game of Thrones is adapting fantasy on an epic scale, mm-hmm. which is why I kind of lean towards the miniseries route. Honestly, I'd, I'd love to have it be, you know, give me a give me a, a Westworld budget to play with Dune or right. a Game of Thrones budget to play with Dune over ten episodes and do a full adaptation and let let is it, the, isn't the Expanse. An adaptation as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In fact, the first season of The Expanse doesn't even get to the end of the first book. They're taking the long game. And what's interesting about The Expanse, and that's a good example. That's actually a good example for playing out a story that has so many moving parts. I wrote a review last season where I talked about a significant chunk of one episode was dealing with two characters that had nothing to do with the main plot. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, uncle and a nephew on a on a ship. And it's like, who are these people? Why do I care? And to some degree, I didn't. But at the same time, it also gave you a perspective on these characters, which actually plays out in the second season mm-hmm. to some degree. Okay. So there, because one of those second season is picking up some other threads, right? Because it's basically the they're looking at this novel as a long, as basically a couple of seasons, really, of a show. And I think that with something like Dune, where you've got all these moving parts, you've got the politics and the religion, and you can't uh, you can't untwine the politics and the religion and the economics 
from the core story because because no, that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, you, for if you've just seen the David Lynch version, you know the story of it's a you know of warring warring governments and a messiah figure who you know right you know, builds an army and takes over the universe, right? Except that's like twenty five percent of the novel. That's a through line, but there's so many things. There's there's the reasons why this makes sense. There's a reason why these are things that are critical to the later stories because yeah, you do, you have because the religious groups are vying for power against the governments, and it's economic control more than it is political power. To, the economic control gives them the political power. Right. So the, the and you have you yes. know, the Benny Jesuit Jesuit you know have this you know, have have Paul well, you know, you, the, who's so you've got rise to power you've got this breeding group. breeding program that they're trying to do. So you've got yeah. this religious group which is basically they're they're they come across as sort of like a uh, a militant Cardinal Richelieu version of like nuns. You know, it's like, but at the same time, what they, what's really happening here is you've got a, a millennia long breeding program where they're trying to basically develop, you know, a, a, they're trying to build, they're trying to grow a messiah and that will basically give them power. And they're basically the powers behind so many of the different political groups that are vying for, vying for power in this universe. Arrakis, the planet called Dune, um, is the source of the spice, which is the primary currency, ultimately, of of the entire culture. And yet you've also got this uh, struggle between the idea of the individual versus the state, uh, absolute power versus power of you know, representative power of the people. It's just, I mean, it's... Oh, and the 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 ecology of Dune is a is almost a character. I mean, right. because well, I re I remember the first time that I read Dune, I was struck by how much of the language Frank Herbert used to describe the desert mm -hmm. was water based. Yeah, and I think I was maybe about maybe about a third of the way into the book before I realized what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him like, oh, that's clever. <laughs> that's very smart. Oh, that's... Because it, it completely changes the the way you perceive how he's describing the planet. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, preconceived notions being what they are, the, the archetypes are desert is lifelessness. Right. There is no life in a desert. And the oceans, well, you know, oceans full of life. You have all the all, all sorts of creatures in 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 the in the ocean. So for him to flip that, mm -hmm. I thought was very very unique and compelling. Well, especially I, in that in that narrative. What's interesting, I think, and I'm very curious to see what they do with this because, of course, he was fascinated by ecology. He was fascinated by the Middle Eastern culture. Mm -hmm. The Fremen are very much based on. Uh, uh, well, to some degree, the the Mujahideen of uh, Afghanistan. There's a very there's the the, the religious. There's no one to one religious uh, analog exactly in Dune. They're almost like the Arabic nomads right. before they were all brought together in their own state. You know, you watch Lawrence of Arabia, 
and all of these different Arabic, mm-hmm. you know, or, uh, Arabian groups were their own thing, were their right. own thing, and they just traveled, and they, just, they there was no organization to them until. Well, if you want to, if you want to really look at what, uh, and this is kind of timely because, of course. We, we've got the issues in the Middle East and, and terrorism, things like that, because terrorism is actually a, a fairly sizable chunk of all the Dune novels. It's all about the, you know, your belief leading you to do mm-hmm. monstrous things often. Um, but if you look at his, history, the, the Islamic peoples of the 20, early 20th century had a very, very different structure. The, the modern Islamic world, the modern countries that we have and we think of, the Middle East, were created right. uh, post World War One, pers- you know, and and yeah. then World War Two. Ev- after these major wars, European nations basically said, "Here's your new country," and the people, the people involved, were not exactly consulted. Um, that was a huge thing after Britain. Britain, I want to say it was Britain and France. I think really shaped the Middle East post World War One, and there was a huge sense of betrayal. Because the tribes were told one thing, mm-hmm. and then they sat there and went, "Well, we're the empire; we can do whatever we want." And they're like, "Well, hang on." <laughs> and so, if you want to, you know, ev- everything that goes on in the modern world, good and bad, you can trace back through history to find the, the causes, the original source. And you could argue, and several historians have, that you know, the way things are today, you know, you can sit there and go back and go, "Well, duh." You set you set yourself up, and, and you know no nobody saw nobody saw any nobody sees where they're going to be in fifty years or a hundred years, you know not Europe, not Asia, not South America, not Russia, not America. And you don't you don't have these things. You don't know these things, right? Fifty years, I'll be dead. Maybe, um, yeah, but be dead. but in some respects, and you know, not to get geopolitical here, but that's actually what Dune is about. It's mm-hmm. about you know it pro- it projects us so far into the future that you don't have those comfortable places to hold on to yeah so when you get the nun figures you know there's this sisterhood this religious sisterhood you, you've got that you, part of your brain says aha catholic nuns and they're like no because <laughs> hey, the orange catholic bible which is almost a zen kind of thing is is a religious text in there um but it's not really what you think of when you think of the catholic church right. um the fremen are not you know they, they have elements of middle eastern culture some of the language has survived in that, but they're not. They're, they're they're not really, you know, they're not Shiite or Sunni Muslims. You get into the Harkonnens come across immediately as the big bads, you know, the, the slimy Russians. villains, and yeah, and they're very, but at the same time, that's not who they are. You know, the em- the emperor is the political games. There's so much political game games being played, and so much manipulation that if. You could almost do an entire episode of a miniseries where they just break down how the politics works, and it would just be gripping and terrifying because these people are playing with planetary, you know, planetary populations, and they're going, you know, we're going to give you the power over Dune, and then we're going to take it away. And, well, you know. and and everything in everything in all of it, you know, Dune, Dune, the planet Arrakis, is almost a microcosm of everything else that's going on oh sure in other places off planet mm-hmm. yeah because it it ultimately is because it is the core it's the source of the biggest 
po- it's the source of all the power ultimately because it's a spice melange is basically in, in, it requ- enables you to fold space. It's so commerce requires this spice and travel requires this spice and the economics of this entire you know multi planets you know multiplanetary system universe of these that they deal in is it's it's critical so it becomes this political hot potato if you're if you're the 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 family the ducal you know the 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 dukedom or the whatever whatever political structure your planet uses if you're given control of this planet it's a huge huge honor but everybody hates you because you got your hand on the button that controls power and it's just I mean, it's yeah, it's everything blows up from there. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. The Star Wars equivalent, since there are a lot of people that are younger, oh sure, who have never read the Dune books, mm-hmm. and we recommend that you read the Dune books. Oh yeah, and start with Frank Herbert's books mm-hmm. because that sets the tone for everything else. But the Star Wars equivalent, since that's in the 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 cultural mainstream right now, sure. Uh, the spice. It's almost as if. The Jedi and the Sith and the Republic and the Empire, all four, were vying for control over Bespin. Because Tabana sure. gas is used in hyperdrive engines. So mm-hmm. it's power it's a power source, it's a it's a resource, it's a commodity, and it's something that everybody needs right. in order to get wherever it is they're going. Mm-hmm. And the Fremen are the Sand people? I don't, I don't <laughs> no, it's, know. It's, it, it breaks down after a while. Oh, yeah. But, no, you know. but at the same time, if you think about it in that terms, think of all of those. Think of the Jedi and the Sith and the Empire and the Rebellion all playing nice publicly. All of them saying the right things in public. But behind the scenes. You have no idea how hard it was for me to sign your death warrant. Exactly. Oh, no, whatever. But yeah, it's. it's, it's it, behind the scenes, though, I mean, right after that, that public lay, level. It's all, you know, plotting and machinations. And, and you know, if, if you thought, if for those of you who liked the prequel and enjoyed um, the political aspect of the Emperor, you know, plotting. Um, <laughs> like Mr. Brody did. There's, there's, there's no comparison. I mean, that's, that's amateur hour in the yeah. plotting department. Think, uh, okay, oh, here we go. Um, think, think the politics of Game of Thrones. Think the politics of, oh, what's the Kevin Spacey series? The, the Kevin Spacey political series. Oh, 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 House of Cards. House of Cards. Think think House of Cards. Or uh, West Wing. Or maybe? West, well, yeah, House of Cards, West Wing, Game of Thrones. Roll all that stuff in together and then take Star Wars and, and lay it on top of it. It's, I mean, that, that's the kind of depth we're talking about in this storytelling. And that's a challenge to make into a movie. <laughs> now, now I want to see Kevin Spacey in a Star Wars movie. I want to see Kevin See, oh. cast Kevin Spacey as ooh, cast Kevin Spacey as the Emperor in 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 Dune because the Emperor oh, is both oh. he is he is good he is evil yeah. he is none of the above he is the consummate politician. Yeah, yeah, I could see that Kevin in Spacey the, would work in the best well. and worst way. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's got to control a bunch of um, psychotic cats. So basically. that means that means then Robin Wright goes to Star Wars. Mm. I'm on board with that. That's right. No, Robin. No, Robin Wright can be. She can be Jessica. She can be Paul's mom. Mm. We got to cast an amazing 16 or 17 year old to be Paul. That's going to be ooh, how? Oh. How? How does it make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. 
to be considering now now we have already we've already dealt with this already with Molly Ringwald playing a mom. Sure, yeah. But to ha- to have Robin Wright the Princess Buttercup playing a mom. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. I am am old enough. I am 46 years old. The women I'm attracted to are all that age group anyway. Because I got a 26-year-old daughter and everything. get too young and they all get all creepy. (laughs) No, I'm excited. I'm excited about uh, he. I think he's an excellent choice. From what I've seen so far, Blade Runner is going to be the key. If Blade Runner works, I'm going to be like, (laughs) but. Okay. That's the challenge, really. Have you seen Sicario? I have not. Okay. I have not either. Um, And I have yet to see The Arrival because I've just been too scattered. Um, Okay. So Blade Runner 2049. Is it 2049? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That comes out. October. Is it this year? Mm, October this year. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Okay. Hmm. Although (laughs) um, the uh, CNET article on his getting the thing getting the cast uh threatens that he may be rebooting uh battlefield earth next <laughs> don't do it don't do it it's a, ter- it's a terrible novel wait battlefield earth that was a movie yeah <laughs> yes yeah yes, yes it was I know, I know. <laughs> and it's a bad novel kids don't don't I, I hate to sit there and say don't buy a novel but it's not even a good novel i'm sorry it's just not sorry what would you recommend instead by dune by Dune. Get a, get yeah, a copy of Dune. go get a copy of Dune. Was it, what was I just seeing? Was it the 50th anniversary this past year? Oh, good Lord, probably. Yeah, because yeah, they did a, a new collection or something. By Children of Dune and or by Dune Messiah and Children of Dune together, because Dune Messiah is like an afternoon's read. It's like 200 pages. Yeah, and um, one one goes into the other, doesn't it? Right. Dune Messiah and Children of Dune are essentially two parts of the same story. And so they adapted they adapted those two together right. for the second miniseries on Sakai. Basically, if you want the short version, Dune is every Dune is the setup for the huge universe. Children of Dune is what happens next. I'm sorry, uh, Dune Messiah is what happens next. Children of Dune is Dune the next generation. God Emperor of Dune is, oh my God, you did what? <laughs> and then uh, after that, it gets crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's it's an amazing series. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Uh, let us know what your thoughts are on Denis Villeneuve being uh, selected as director of the new Dune project. And do you think that they're going to start with Dune or they're going to start with someplace else? Send us an email, h2o at sci-fi-for-me.com. Or you can leave us a comment on all of our social media. And uh, we are looking forward to episode 150. Right around the corner. Right around the corner. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2017 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. This is Sci-Fi For Me Radio.